Welcome back. You're listening to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. How have you been spending your time in lockdown? In this part of the world, more time at home has meant more time streaming video. According to my guest this week, total minutes spent viewing online video in Southeast Asia jumped 60% in the first quarter of the year. Most of that new viewership occurred via smartphones, which suggests that video streaming is a private affair. Gone are the days when families circled up around the TV set to watch their favorite drama or game show. That's a problem for content providers and advertisers who rely on programming reach. While programming choice is great for consumers, it makes the economics of the media industry ever more difficult. Even before the COVID crisis, pay TV operators were feeling the pinch. Billions of dollars have been deployed by licensed operators from Singapore to Seoul. They've spent handsomely on fiber optic networks, satellite links, and customer care and billing services, just to keep their customers happy. Then came along the disruptors, those so-called over-the-top or OTT providers that charge a low monthly fee for all the streaming video you can consume. You know the ones I'm talking about. Netflix, Hulu, HBO Now. Add to these a new tier of regional or single market providers, and the market is flush in quick and cheap subscription choices. My guest, Vivek Kuto, is executive director and co-founder of Media Partners Asia, a market research and consulting firm catering to the telecom, media, and entertainment industry in Asia. My conversation with Vivek brought me back to a time when I consulted to the industry, and my how things have changed. Like so many sectors, media entertainment has been laid bare by web-based digital offerings that win on price and convenience. How the industry is struggling to adjust is the subject of my conversation. I started out by asking Vivek to walk us back through the industry's evolution. The media sector got across Asia got the biggest benefit from uh, private capital uh, from the 90s onwards. Um, as you quite rightly identified, in many markets you had terrestrial infrastructure and, and some of the privatization of those networks. And then more importantly, the growth of satellite-delivered television um, the licensing of cable operators, the consolidation of cable operators, um, the growth of three or four big global regional networks backed by global investors strategically. So obviously you had Rupert Murdoch paid through various tranches two to three billion dollars for Star TV and then grew that to be a very, very big business, which he sold to Disney a couple of years ago. And we can talk about that later. Um, Subhash Chandra Z Entertainment, Richard Lee, Lee's PCCW, um, you know, various players in Korea, in Japan. Um, so you have Liberty Media at one point was involved, John Malone's company, and the growth of cable systems in, in Australia and uh, in Japan. Um, so you had a lot of money and a lot of capital coming. And also, by the way, private equity got involved. Macquarie, uh, KKR at one point as well. Uh, CBC across the region. So you had a lot of money being poured into investment into infrastructure, uh, distribution, uh, primarily set-top box-based and then broadband-based, and and of course content. And um, and you know particularly the availability and the growth of premium local content, which has really become a very big thing in some of these markets, particularly in India, to some extent China. And of course, Korea, which is you know the cultural capital now of the region, and driving a lot of cultural conversations globally, as you as you saw at the Oscars this year. Um, so you see a you know, huge growth of an ecosystem, and 
while it's been very traditional based, I think six or seven years ago, you saw the growth obviously globally of streaming. Netflix was the first place to do it way back when in 2006 and seven, and then Hulu and Amazon followed. Um, you know, the absence of physical infrastructure, the absence of set-top boxes, and the ability to have global scale uh, overnight. Um, and this is not just unique to Netflix. It's also there with Facebook and Snap and Google and various other companies. Uh, is poses a, a you know an existential threat to traditional media companies, whether they were News Corp or Time Warner, or also to to local broadcasters, because our business has always been about locality, and now of course you have global scale and reach in one go, and not necessarily the physical asso cost associated with traditional distribution. So streaming Today, is the disruptor. Streaming, yeah, it, that's and, the disruptor. And that is the disruptor, and it's, it's technological disruption. And um, and I think you know today we have a sector across Asia, which is basically the, the, we call it the video industry, which comprises, as you said, free television, pay television, and and streaming, streaming video, uh, whether it's YouTube or Netflix. And then you know that sector is today about 120 billion dollars. And the traditional players, you know, what we watch, which is channels and terrestrial broadcasters, news and entertainment, and also the pay networks. Um, that's held holding on uh, just about to about 90 to $95 billion of that. And, and, and the remainder, $25 billion, is streaming. Uh, the big markets, you know, are still many, not much has changed, except certain things have become more pronounced. Um, China is massive, you know, today still. It's, it accounts for $50 billion plus. And it exercises huge weights across the region. India is close to 12 billion. Southeast Asia, still fragmented, but growing. It's about 9 billion. Australia, New Zealand, around 8. And then Japan, uh, Korea, close to 10. And Japan, around 26. Um, and, but what's, what's very interesting, Steve, is this within those constituent things, a lot of things have happened. India has become, despite its contradictions and conflicts, probably the most accessible media market to global investors um, through these last 20 years. Um, you know, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or Sony or Time Warner, everyone has had uh, a big level of investment in that market. Some have succeeded uh, at, at a great, great rate, particularly the Murdochs. And, uh, you know, they built a very, very formidable local business. And um, the valuation of that business was very significant uh, when they sold the whole global business to Disney. Uh, it's now India's become sort of front and center of the global streaming wars. Uh, Netflix is in the market. Amazon is in the market. Disney Plus is in the market. Facebook is very active in the market. Google is very active in the market. Well, let's come to streaming in a minute, Vivek. But first, let's yeah. talk about the traditional players. I mean, to deliver yeah. pay TV is an expensive proposition. And the sunk cost, whether it's cable or satellite or uh, wireless distribution, uh, set-top boxes, servicing, um, it, it's a lot of money and a lot of investment. 
how are these organizations still holding on when you've got the dual issue of people cutting their cables, in other words, uh, opting out of subscription-based services, but also turning more towards streaming? How are some of the traditional players surviving? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I think for people, as you rightly identified, who've invested a lot in physical infrastructure, particularly on the video sign-on and set-top boxes and, and so forth, it's, it's a tricky balance. I think there's a couple of things that have happened. Halfway through the last decade, uh, broadband, high-speed broadband became a necessity. And one of the things that's happened in emerging Asia is the growth of fiber infrastructure and the profitability of that infrastructure, because everyone is now wanting to use fiber broadband, as COVID has shown, in capital cities across emerging Asia. That could be in Mumbai, that could be in Jakarta, could be even in Manila. And you know, the cost is still uh, significant for the consumer, and operators are able to make money out of that. So to answer your question, there's almost, without overgeneralizing, there's two or three buckets of operators. There's the bucket of operator which is effectively a telecommunications company that is distributing video through IP, like an IPTV service and bundling broadband or giving you broadband and doesn't necessarily have these legacy set-top box costs, number one, and doesn't necessarily, or if it does, has moved to IP and ridden off some of those costs, so just done a very good transition. And secondly, doesn't have necessarily legacy linear channel content costs and excessive minimum guarantees and you know, is not coming out of that old world. And they're doing very well. They're just saying, look, I'm a pipe for OTT. Some even have that dedicated OTT app. Some of them have their OTT services. So it, it varies. The issue for satellite operators, whether you're talking about someone like Astro in Malaysia or Skyvision in Indonesia, who used to be called Indivision, is, is deeper. Um, because fundamentally, you are unable to provide IP through direct-to-home satellite, you are unable to provide high-speed broadband to direct-to-home satellite, and you are left out in the cold because you're, you're giving a household customer, whereas a lot of people are using mobile, telco, individual users. And I think it's a big issue for them because as they, and Foxtel in Australia is another good example of that, because as they try and transition, they find that they've raised a lot of their money, including significant amounts of debt um, you know, which is the Foxtel issue, uh, pledged against offering customers very expensive pay television packages over fairly prohibitive set-top box capex, and they have to service these customers. And sure, they can disrupt that model and give it to you know everyone at five bucks or six bucks, um, but that's not going to make the money. And that's not, what, you know, so it's it's a real issue. I mean, Foxtel is doing this right now. They've, they've offered two, three services now, which are, which are sort of low ARPU OTT services. One is sports, one is entertainment. Uh, but there's a displacement of value, right? As I trade down from paying an operator 40 bucks to paying him 10 bucks, where does that $30 get? For a telco, he can make up the gap by saying, well, you know, I'm, use, I'm subsidizing it with my broadband bill. But for a satellite company, they don't have those, uh, they don't have that to fall upon. So Vivek, um, what, so, what options so, are- so that's, that's, that's an issue, sorry. Yeah, what options are available to them then if this is the, the direct, direction that it's going? 
think the, 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 the best options for them is either merging with a telco company or being completely restructured and, and just changed as a business. Uh, and some people are doing that um, and, and basically recalibrating their services or doing positioning themselves very differently by saying, okay, we will be a household service in pay television and, you know, a, a service for premium entertainment and sports and our demographic is 40 upwards and will be something very different on mobile with a different brand. We will have to incur a lot of job losses. We'll have to recalibrate our costs with our partners. But this is the new era and this is how we're doing it, you know. So there's three three buckets really. And, and we are seeing, certainly in places like India and Korea, the telco pay TV sort of merger happened quite a lot in the last two years. Uh, we haven't seen that in Southeast Asia yet, uh, but we'll see. What, what are some of the issues on the content side? I remember during the 1990s, uh, the, uh, very, the idea of content is king was a, a grand notion that it didn't really matter as long as you had what people wanted to watch, you could place a premium on the pricing. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't think content is front and center at the moment of conversations. Great content and great storytelling, whether it's HBO or Disney or Netflix, still comes to the fore. Um, but there's, 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 I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, complexity to your question. It's a great question. Firstly, it's not front and center because attention time and eyeballs are so fragmented, right? right? So there's so much distraction right now. Uh, and there's a lot of new alternatives to content, particularly with the rise of online gaming, for instance, which has just grown exp exponentially. And it's a huge uh, sort of attention, uh, kind of comp competition for attention for, for, for young people. But with the ubiquity of broadband, your choice has grown. So suddenly broadband has become the most important thing. Everything flows out of that. That broadband bill, it could be mobile, it could be household. And content is just one of the things that is driven, is, is, is the glue for that connectivity, right? Gaming is another, e-commerce is another, different styles of apps is another. And every now and then, of course, great storytelling will shine. So that's one, one, one aspect. The second aspect is, as OTT and streaming grows, you know, the players like Netflix and Disney Plus and others, particularly with Netflix, you know, their approach has been very, very driven by high volume. And certainly people like HBO Max in the U.S. seem to be following that route. There are concerns about what that does to storytelling because, you know, sure, if you make 100 things a day, your batting average is going to be okay, right? You, you'll be able to get, you know, six or seven great things. But I think a lot of people on certain side of the fence that in our approach towards franchises and our approach towards volume, uh, the sort of, the, the the diversity of content, number one, and the quality of content could be commoditized. So what are, what are the, some of the things that you're seeing in terms of the way that Asians are choosing to spend their free time? In other words, I heard from your earlier point that it's not so much sitting in front of a television. It's now 
a variety of digital options. So it could be social media, it could be gaming, it could be watching on your phone, so your different different mediums of receiving information. It sounds like it's fragmented. So it's no longer a consistent way of absorbing or uh, 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 um, you know consuming informa- uh, entertainment. It's now about varieties available and the way people parse up the, the, the time they spend with entertainment. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It is fragmented uh, and it is an issue. But we are seeing through COVID, and I know I'm going to talk about that a little bit later with you, we are seeing through COVID a certain sort of consolidations of interests on the video front. So everything through the COVID era we've seen in Southeast Asia anyway is, you know, first of all, screen time on mobile just massively grew. Streaming minutes grew 60% to $60 billion plus. Uh, uh, sorry, not $60 billion, $60 billion streaming minutes plus. And you are seeing some level of fragmentation in terms of, as I said, people doing a lot of online gaming, going to a lot of social media apps, both for news particularly and others. But I have to say what it has shown is that even though there's fragmentation, there is a level of consolidation that we haven't seen uh, for some time. So it's almost given premium streaming video a sense of life. So in the last, I would say, four months, Netflix has done incredibly well um, in all markets, but particularly in Southeast Asia, it's done very well from what, from the numbers we've seen in terms of people spending time on Netflix's mobile plans, which are somewhat cheaper. And they're able to consume a lot of content on that. Uh, PCCW, which owns a service called View, has also done incredibly well. And, and they've done well on their paid plans. YouTube, of course, has done you know, exceptionally well. And then you're seeing other local services that are doing well. Um, video, the IDIO in Indonesia, or I Want TV in the Philippines, uh, or you know, TVB service in Hong Kong. And, and those streaming services are doing well. And, they're mo- and, and, and the part to monetization for them, because they're charging directly, um, is easier than traditional television, which is also doing well, but they can't monetize on advertising because no one's spending. And most of their consumers aren't paying the bills at the moment because they've been given a moratorium not to spend for two or three months, or they've been given massive levels of discounts. So are you suggesting, I mean, one, the, the, the increase is by virtue of the fact that in lockdown, there's more time to be spent looking for things to do. You're not out and about. You're not working. In some cases, you're not socializing with friends. It's just the new available capacity to absorb. Is that right? Incre- incredibly so. And, 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 and people with deep libraries like Netflix and to some extent View and a whole dose of premium content are doing very well. And you're seeing different genres pick up. You know, Korean content has really shone throughout this year for the last six months. And, and they're pervasive, not just on Netflix and View, but on other services. And you're seeing different genres, you know, kids and animation, documentary, all of that stuff. So, um, you know, really, really being pervasive. So will this settle back, Vivek? Do you anticipate that two, three months out, as people have done the trials, decided not to sign on, things return to relative normality, that you'll see actually a reverse or a decline in streaming services and we're back to where we began? No, I don't think you'll see that. I think I think it's just too far too far gone to to have that. You know, I mean I think there's 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 two things that might happen. You might see to your point, some level of churn. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, the, I think Netflix and View have sort of picked up a lot of their full year 
subscriber growth in the first half of this year, you will see some levels of churn. And I think they're both expecting that. But fundamentally, um, in terms of the consumption and the movement online, that had already begun, Steve, two, three years ago. It had begun in China for various reasons. It had begun in India and it had begun in parts of Southeast Asia. But I think you're going to see more pronounced movement towards it for two reasons. One, the total addressable market for, the, for these services is going to increase because fiber connectivity is growing in capital cities and more people are getting broadband, both at home and online. And the distribution of these services are going to increase. Secondly, people are putting more money and investment into content on these shows as opposed to traditional television. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's going to be more pronounced. And, you know, Netflix across the region, they made $1.5 billion in revenue last year for across Asia Pacific. We think they'll hit around $2.4, $2.5 billion this year. So it's a steady growth. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a significant growth for, uh, for the business going forward. You mentioned that many of these services are direct to consumer and therefore with a credit card or some purchase, you can, you know, subscribe. You do, you're not required right. to go through an intermediary. There are tax implications there. How are governments responding to groups like Netflix or Disney or others who are charging directly and therefore bypassing uh, what otherwise revenue might flow to some degree to governments? An excellent question. Uh, I think, firstly, the tax side of the business is happening in most markets and most of the OTTs are compliant with that. They've done it in Australia and New Zealand. They're doing that in parts of Southeast Asia. They're doing it in India. So that's fine. I think the deeper question you ask is, you know, as you've seen broadcasting come up, Steve, and you're looking at OTT, you know, one of the biggest issues with broadcasting is it did very well, but there were a level of, there were some regulations that inhibited its growth, uh, certainly from an investment criteria. Uh, India, as I said, is accessible because you can invest 100% in India except news. You can't do that in other markets. Mm. Um, now, to be fair, I regulators in most markets are choosing to level up rather than level down. However, the biggest issue is really about the local content norms. How do you ensure that local content the ecosystems stay vital as these OTT players that are growing quite significantly don't invest in them? Um, and I think that's the big debate right now is should Netflix and Disney and others who enter these markets, should they have an ob obligation, not just for a local content requirement, but a local in content investment requirement, you know? So 10% or 20% of their revenues being invested at that scale. So, and so a form know, it, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because Netflix and Amazon spend a lot of money to invest locally in markets like India, Korea, and Japan. And no surprise, the content from most of those markets travels globally. Okay, uh, but in Australia, New Zealand, it remains to be seen. In Southeast Asia, it remains to be seen. So this is a percentage of revenues that go towards, if you will, subsidizing local content development in exactly, order to exactly yeah. subsidizing or investing in the ecosystem. And look, it's a new inside uh, thing. I mean, they the, the reason for all of this is also because you have local players that have carried the weight of that burden for a long time, right? As you know, the free-to-air players. But those free-to-air players are being deeply disrupted. You know, um, Australia is already going through that disruption um, with the free-to-air players and, and others. And, you know, Australia, it, 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 this is one part of the argument. The other part of the argument is more severely, you know, it's, 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 it's also aimed at Google and Facebook 
uh, on the news side and on the internet side, which is even deeper. What are some of the innovations that you anticipate might come uh, by, from, from COVID and perhaps give media and the media sector a boost beyond streaming, beyond your, your, your typical entertainment uh, services? Are there education modules? Are there interactivity? Is there, I you think, mentioned earlier, gaming? Is, it's a very good question. I think, I, think, I, think, I, think, um, I think news has come back in demand quite dramatically. And I think people who have strong levels of local news and community access and also digital manifestations of that at a scalable level um, and are important for discussions and important for uh, that level of service are going to do very well. I think edutech uh, or the type services which are proliferating in India, um, you know, something combining great education and technology at scale, they start to proliferate in India, they start to gain capital and they're starting to, to, to deploy quite meaningfully in markets like India and Indonesia. So we are seeing demand for those kinds of services, to be frank, uh, both you know, on a non-streaming way, but combining the best elements of what an education curriculum could look like or what a science slash learning application could look like with technology. And, you know, working with telecoms companies, working with sort of direct-to-consumer digital type companies to do partnerships. And we're seeing that, I mean, we're looking at that more in places like India and Indonesia, but I, I think it's going to be because those are big, large emerging markets that have need for these kinds of services. Uh, but we, 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 we uh, there's no doubt you're going to see that in our other aspects of, 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 of the region. You know, and, and sorry. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I see the telcos have tried this in the past. They've, they've tried to become content players because they own the pipes. They own the network. You know, why not just create the content and monetize that as well? But what, what we've seen is that they have been pretty much horrific in that game. They haven't really pulled anything off that you could point a finger at and, and say that was an extraordinary piece of work. They've talked about interactivity. They've talked about education. They've talked about all these other capabilities, but time and time again, they fall flat. Why would this be any different this time around? Or should they just you know resign themselves to be the pipe and let others get on with using that infrastructure to deliver services uh, when they have the capabilities and perhaps the track record? That's a very good question. Um, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think the, the new telco ma mantra in most markets is very much focused on being a great aggregator, a great pipe, and a great billing mechanism for new services. And that's what I meant when they were doing partnerships with Edutech. I don't think they're going to necessarily invest upstream anymore at scale. There are a couple who are still doing it, particularly with sports rights and so forth. But I think the, the game has changed. I think, you know, a lot of telcos have made bets on 3G and 4G. Some of these bets, unfortunately, haven't come off. And now they've been forced to look at 5G and you know, do different things around that service, enterprise services as well. And the game has changed and the returns aren't there. So I think that whole model has changed. And I agree with you. Um, doing upstream content businesses um, you know, is, is, is a challenge, both culturally and uh, philosophically and spiritually for telcos. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tougher game. 
Vivek, um, your organization, as long as I can remember, has been convening gatherings of the media players and media partners uh, in Bali, if I'm not mistaken, and annual conferences. What is your business doing now that we're uh, staying away from live events? How are you uh, uh, toggling in order to stay relevant? No, look, it's a, it's, it's a, that's, that is a sort of a, a big question for us. And we, you know, we, we've decided that, you know, given our, we, we've, we've had one signature event uh, that has global appeal um, that takes place every year. And unfortunately, you know, given the effects of the pandemic and the issues with travel, we, we feel these issues are going to be fairly pervasive for the remainder of the year and maybe even through the first quarter of next year. Uh, so as a result of that, we are kind of reconvening and pivoting to a, an, an online series, uh, a, a virtual video event, which will be called APOS Online, which will have a series in July, which is July the 21st to the 23rd, and another one in, in September the 1st to the 3rd. And I think the, the encouraging aspect of this is kind of refocuses you um, to have, you know, like the conversation we're having now, very vital, focused conversations um, about the future of our business. And what are the key things that regulators and investors should be looking at and should be doing in our business? And and because it's um, not physically limited to geographic to, to geographical sort of location, we're able to have global conversations with people that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to target. So we're looking forward to that and seeing where that leads. Well, it sounds like there's nothing, no shortage of things to talk about. I mean, with this shift in uh, in COVID and with the disruption that's coming and the increase in streaming, I'm sure that some of the media players out there are trying to figure out how they will survive, if not thrive, in the in the years to come. No, I agree, and I think disruption comes when you least expect it, and it's usually, as you know, Steve, quite uh, it, it's it's disregarded. I mean, I'll give you two examples just to. Uh, just to uh, finish off today on uh, one is uh, obviously in our sector in video and the other one is in telecoms. In video, Netflix, you know, came outside the sector. It was a technology company inherently. And, and, and people didn't really take them seriously. People dismissed them. Uh, they gave them a lot of their content. They licensed a lot of their content to them. Um, and now they are pervasive in the U.S. And they basically are the biggest spender um, you know, in many ways on, 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 on entertainment content, along with players like Disney and so forth across their different networks. But they are a huge, huge force to reckon with. And they've, they've completely disrupted both content creation and distribution. And the second example is on the telco side. Singtel and others for years and years, no one really gave Reliance much credence in India. Um, and, you know, their ability to disrupt distribution uh, in India on, on mobile and on broadband in such a meaningful way. Uh, and, but they have done it. You know, they've created a network that disrupted Airtel, made Singtel spend a lot more money than it, sh- than it otherwise would have. And they've still got Singtel and Airtel chasing their tail now as they've managed to get huge amounts of investment from Facebook and Silver Lake and General Atlantic and they raised $15 billion in, in a month in India. In the, during a time of COVID. But again, uh, a company that wasn't a typical telco, wasn't in the sector, wasn't an incumbent. And it was basically a company that uh, was, was completely outside the sector and thinking about the space very strategically. 
Well, Vivek, thank you so much for taking time. It's always a pleasure. And I, uh, I look forward to staying in touch and uh, seeing how the industry and, and your business progresses. Steve, thanks very much for your time. That was my conversation with Vivek Kuto, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Media Partners Asia. The discussion left me with a few thoughts. Like most industries, there's that part of the business that we see, and then there's the other part that sits in the background. Radio waves, satellite dishes, and fiber optics are a means to an end. Without these digital gateways, video on demand would remain a pipe dream. In the media game, there are many players. Like the Hollywood Rollers, those big movie makers including Warner Brothers, Sony Pictures, Disney, and DreamWorks. They have the money and talent to make the imagination soar. Then there's the serials, creators of multi-episodic dramas like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad, the kind of entertainment that gave new meaning to the term binging. Netflix, Hulu, and HBO have built entire new business models on the backs of our viewing addictions. If watching's not your thing, how about browsing, gaming, flirting, and zooming? All bandwidth-dependent forms of entertainment ready to eat away at whatever leisure time we have left. Every beauty needs a beast, and that's the pay TV operator, telco, or network provider. They build and maintain the infrastructure so you can be entertained. Until recently, they've also been the ones that made you pay for it. Pirating your content has always been an option, but in the realm of legal, new streaming video services are putting the old pay TV model into an early grave. All those sunk costs are a weight around the neck of traditional operators who thought they could profit by holding the keys to the kingdom. Unfortunately for them, this fairy tale may not have a storybook ending. We consumers want video, and lots of it, on demand. Broadband allows for that. It lowers the barriers of entry for any organization that can generate enough content that people want to watch. There's a downside, however. Like Walmart, it did wonders for bringing low-cost goods to consumers around the world, but it also drove out smaller local players like the local butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. We risk a similar fate with global media. Vest in a few global media giants, and they build storylines that serve the greatest common denominator. They set the entertainment agenda and bring you along with them. Netflix, to some degree, appears to be addressing this. They invest in productions from around the world, which can be later subtitled and made available to subscribers anywhere. Maybe that's enough. But what happens to the thousands of smaller production companies around the world that have neither the funding or distribution reach to ever succeed? Vivek mentions one idea that's making the rounds. What about a tax on the global streaming giants? In return for accessing viewers in market, they pay a percentage of subscription proceeds to support local content development. Sounds a bit problematic, doesn't it? For every gift offered up by technology, something always gets sacrificed. The Facebook conundrum is a case in point. With half a billion people using the service, it's the category killer in social media. So much power in the hands of one company is cause for concern. What happens if the video streaming services follow suit, building such scale that they subsume all independent production houses and leave us, the viewer, beholden to their standards of future video entertainment? 
While the China media sector, like all things China, has a plan of its own with its market size and money to match, much of Asia may find itself held hostage to a form of cultural entertainment imperialism. Keeping alive a local film industry is as important as preserving culinary traditions. The Koreans have shown what great film and entertainment looks like. Great stories are great stories, and the Korean films and TV series travel, finding grateful viewers everywhere in Asia. More of this is needed. So I say to Asian viewers, have your Netflix, but stay local too. We thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. May you have a binge-worthy week. Want to start a conversation? Reach out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And if you're not a regular listener, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. There are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.